All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. Go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, put your name on the waiting list to get uh, a subscription to Chen's newsletter that begins in the new calendar quarter. You can also sign up for my newsletter at miningstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and I'd like to encourage you to send along your questions, comments, criticisms, or adulations to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. would like to also invite you to follow me on Twitter at jtaylormedia. J. Taylor Media is my handle. want to thank uh, each of you, uh, as I said, for listening to the show. We also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our f- sponsors for today's show are Caden Resources, Ganey Capital Corporation, Wellgreen Platinum, which we want to welcome them today as a sponsor, and Cornerstone Capital. What will the consequences of a second Cold War with Russia be? That is a topic we want to discuss today. David McElvaney returns, and Peter Lavelle, a journalist at Crosstalk, host, he is a host uh, for that show at RT, leads a discussion with Alexander Makouris, Amitov uh, Akaria, and Dr. Enze Han on what does the West lose by alienating Russia. Now, that was an April, uh, an April 12th discussion at RT. Uh, in the second hour, aired exclusively at J. Taylor Media, Daniel McAdams will join me to talk about the latest geopolitical events uh, taking place around the world, and David Jensen will talk about how geopolitics and market manipulation are impacting the precious metals markets, as he does almost every week on the second hour of our show. Also in the second hour of the show, I want to pass along a couple of my favorite gold mining shares that I am extremely bullish on at this point in time. But in the first hour, I do want to explore the whole issue of raising uh, geopolitical conflicts between the United States and Russia and what that may mean for our personal investments as well as concerns for our overall personal well-being and safety. Unless you uh, completely have your head in the sand and rely only on the increasingly biased Western media in which no dissenting views are permitted with respect to the military-industrial complex, you will realize that the United States and its economy is increasingly relying on its killing machine, the military-industrial complex that 
President Eisenhower warned us about uh, so many decades ago. It looks for the world to me as if the United States is entering another Cold War with Russia, or perhaps it won't be so clear-cut as that. Perhaps, as some people think, the world is breaking up into a multipolar world in which the U.S., though, however, is losing its dominance. Now, if that is true, the U.S. dollar may indeed be at risk, and the investment landscape may change very dramatically from what we know uh, at the present time. I believe the threat of the U.S. losing its ability to print dollars that are accepted by people around the world for purchase of the world's goods and services and the West's increasing insolvency as a result of its endless Keynesian-induced debt load may be what is truly underlying the, uh, America's increasing warmongering behavior. In any event, whatever the cause of, the, of America's heavy-handed threat to the sovereignty of nations is, since we can't get an even-handed discussion of geopolitics from the U.S. media, in just a few minutes after the first commercial break, I will be going uh, to play an April 9th 2014 discussion aired on RT's Crosstalk show hosted by Peter Lavelle. Then at about half past the hour, David McElvaney will be joining me. I will want to get his views on some of the points raised by the panel discussion from RT. Uh, to hear what he has to say, also want to know what he thinks uh, the raising conflict of Russia uh, will mean for our investments. What does the West really think it will gain by having another Cold War with Russia? What are some of the hidden reasons why the U.S. has, once again, used covert means to overthrow an elected government and put in its own puppet in the Ukraine? And most importantly, how should we prepare our investments and our lives in general for the impact this conflict may have on our economic well-being and on our personal safety? Well, we do have to go to break now, but when we come back, I will air the April 9th discussion on the geopolitical impact of rising tensions between the United States and Russia, followed then by a discussion with David McElvaney. Second hour, uh, we will be talking to Daniel McAdams and David Jensen to get their take on uh, all of these political geopolitical events as well. So don't go away, because coming up next, I'll be airing a discussion on what the West expects to gain from alienating Russia. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network caden resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in mexico the company's flagship el barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. 
You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, as promised before the break, here is a discussion from various international geopolitical experts on the RT show titled Crosstalk. It's hosted by Peter Lavelle. The discussion centers on the April 9th discussion on the topic, What Does the West Lose by Alienating Russia? Listen carefully for some ideas, most of which you won't hear in the Western mainstream media. Hello and welcome to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. Pivoting Russia, the Western-engineered crisis in Ukraine has put Russia and the West on a collision course. The drumbeat for greater sanctions against Moscow continues, but Russia has options. It could seek intensified relations with the East. How will this change the geopolitical order? To Crosstalk Pivoting Russia, I'm joined by my guest, Amitav Acharya, in Washington. He is a professor of international relations at the American University, as well as author of the new book, The End of the American World Order. In London, we have Enze Han. He is a lecturer on international security of East Asia at the University of London. And in Moscow, we cross to Alexander Mikuris. He is a writer on legal affairs and an analyst. All right, gentlemen, Crosstalk rules in, a, in effect. That means you can jump in anytime you want. Alexander, if I can go to you first here in Moscow. Um, Tell us how we got here, because at the beginning of this century, Vladimir Putin just became president in 2000. He reached out to the West. He reached out to the West on many different levels, economic, security, financial, the works. But how did we get to this point now? Uh, what you say is absolutely right. If you look at Putin, when he, was first, when he first became president, he was undoubtedly someone who wanted, more than anything else, good relations with the West and indeed wanted to integrate Russia with the West. At the time of the 2001 terrorist attacks, he uh, went out of his way to help the U.S. Um, where it went wrong is that the U.S. demanded from him and from the Russians, we shouldn't always talk about Mr. Putin here, from the Russians, and gave back very little. If we go back to 2001, for example, they gave an undertaking that they would not establish military bases in Central Asia beyond the conflict in Afghanistan and then almost immediately that's exactly what they did and by 2007 Mr. Putin was making speeches in Munich very moderately and in a very restrained way complaining about how NATO had been expanded eastwards and how uh, pledges that had been made to Russia in the 1980s had not been kept and now we've had more situations since. We had the 2008 war with Georgia, okay. where the West took the uh, Georgian side. And now, of course, we've had the Ukraine. Okay. Amitav, in Washington, Russia may pivot to Asia. What does that mean to you? Well, the American pivot to Asia is basically a way to pay more attention, more strategic attention, and deploy more uh, military resources to Asia as the wars in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan winds down and uh, the United States is increasingly concerned about the rise of China. So, so, so pivoting was a way, uh, it's a policy to redeploy some of those uh, forces from the Middle East and Europe to, to Asia. But, uh, you know, in military terms, it doesn't really very, um, uh, it doesn't mean much, but I, I think as a political statement, as a shift in U.S. policy, it, it does. 
Okay. And say in, in London, I mean, it, everybody seems to be pivoting to Asia, uh, Asia right now. The United States, we have Russia now wanting to turn there. What does that mean? I mean, it's going to be a crowded neighborhood, huh? Right. Well, I mean, what it really means, I think, at this point, probably some rethinking in, in Washington in terms of whether there should be some balance between the Pacific and the Atlantic theater. Mm -hmm. And I think at this point, probably people are already thinking that probably some kind of diver diversion of attention of China will be shifted back to Europe and Russia. Okay, Alexander, it's really quite interesting because the Obama administration has been talking about this pivot, and then you have all these voices in Europe saying the Americans should stay and actually beef up their presence there instead of withdrawing. It's an interesting well, you know, example where maybe it's the, uh, the, the tail wagging the dog. Well, it's also a, a, an indication of how um, badly, in many ways, the United States has handled its relations, because it's, had, it's got very bad relations at the moment with Russia, and its relations with China are, are under strain. We heard before our, uh, the previous guests talking about how the United States is concerned about the rise of China, and there was the pivot to the East by the United States in order to counter that. And now at the same time as that's happening, and we've had all sorts of issues with China over disputed islands, over all kinds of other things, we have the United States also now having to focus on Europe too. So, where it could have been friends with both countries, and I, we spoke about how Russia at the beginning of this century wanted to be a friend of the United States, the United States has now got itself into a situation where it's gone, got bad relations with both countries, and both countries seem to be deepening their relations with each other in response to the pressure they feel from the United States. And that is a pivotal change. Uh, let me just add something to what I said, and also in response to what we just heard. First of all, uh, the, the pivot policy was done well before the Ukraine crisis. Agreed. And, uh, and the United States has been concerned about China right from a from the late 1990s or, or early 2000s. And, and pivoting is also not just a military strategy. It has economic and diplomatic components. What is new, though, uh, with the crisis in Ukraine, with the revitalization of NATO, the United States now have to decide whether it can afford to pivot as much as it had thought it could, because now NATO will demand more strategic attention and resources. So I think this creates a strategic dilemma for the U.S., and uh, there's no, no easy way out. But let me add one quick point. Uh, even the relations between the U.S. and China are not as bad, as, uh, not as good as they could be. They're not as bad as the current relations between the U.S. and Russia. And uh, the U.S. Defense Secretary is just uh, visited or in, uh, in visiting, uh, visiting Beijing. And, uh, and, uh, and also, the majority of countries in Asia do want the United States to be around in, in the region. Uh, so I think there's a big difference between uh, U.S. relations with China and U.S. relations with Russia for the time being. And saying, Lenin, how, how do you think the Chinese will uh, look at Russia intensifying its relationship with the East, turning to the East away from the West? Well, I mean, as, as, as said earlier, I mean, there are some thinking in the U.S., basically during the Bush Jr.'s administration at the beginning, they were thinking, basically, try to focus on, on China and East Asia. However, 9-11 uh, happened, and basically, um, you know, Mia Shama, for example, in, in Chicago would, would argue that U.S. wasted 10 years of strategic attention on the Middle East rather than focusing on China. So what it means now is basically that when Russia is trying to 
in some ways reassert its influence in its previous influence in the post-Soviet republics. And from China's point of view, it actually is a good opportunity. And some of the tensions, not only in terms of administration's strategic and economic attention, but also domestically in the U.S. public's interest in terms of how much the, the, the image of, of China and now as the enemy, for example, probably would be some kind of diversion to Russia. And that would be some kind of sweet bonus for, for China at this point. Alexander, one of the interesting things, that probably the only good thing uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin did as president is that he, he strengthened relations with mm -hmm. China. And we look at the, the Central Asia where China and Russia have mutual concerns and they work together, they cooperate. This is mm -hmm. a plus yeah. for both countries. It is indeed. And I think it's important, though, to say relations between Russia and China have been good for many years, since the 1990s. There have been problems. I mean, there were problems about Chinese copying or allegedly copying Russian weapons and things of that kind. But they've been good. What we are starting to see, though, is from the Russian point of view, a feeling that they want to go beyond what are merely good relations towards building a strategic relationship. And I think the Chinese, to some extent, in fact, to a great extent, probably want the same thing, because each country has a lot to offer the other. We've seen, for example, how the events in the Ukraine have actually benefited China in its relations with the United States. So each country can support the other, can help to take the pressure off the other, and has a lot to offer economically the other. Um, and I think this is a major shift from merely good relations to an actual strategic relationship. Amitav, in Washington, a major shift, a paradigm shift. Is it a big deal? Is this a big deal, what's going on right now? Yeah, if I can just uh, start by commenting on uh, <clears throat> what the previous speaker said, uh, Alexander, I think, said. Uh, I think it's very important to bear in mind that uh, what I, I agree that Russia and China have much common ground and the crisis uh, I think the U.S. relations with each of these two countries could move them together. But I really am skeptical that that will develop into like an alliance, uh, the strategic alliance, like in the 1950s, the, uh, the, the China-Soviet uh, alliance, for example. But the Chinese have uh, now become a global player, and they have a lot of common interest also with the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing is the Chinese are also very careful about while they may have sympathy, they understand the reasons of why Russia went to Crimea, for example, but the annexation of Crimea doesn't go down very well with a lot of the Asian countries, including some sections in China. Uh, so mm. one has to be very careful how this Russia-China relations might proceed. I think a partnership, yes, a strategic partnership, but some kind of an alliance. You know, China has a policy of not having military alliances or strategic alliances mm. in the conventional sense with any country. And it will require a big change of policy uh, on the part of China to change that. And can, can I just say... Go ahead, Alexander, jump in. Go ahead. Careful. Go ahead, jump I in. was very careful not to use the word alliance because I don't think there's any possibility of an actual military alliance such as the one that existed between Russia and China in the 1950s. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a strategic relationship. In terms of diplomatic activity, that to a great extent has been happening for a long time now. Now we're going to see a deepening of other ties, of economic ties, of military ties. No other country that I know of, for example, sells military equipment to China. 
um, apart from Russia. Russia is now going to start upgrading, apparently, the military supplies it is going to send to China. There's talk about sending sophisticated surface-to-air missiles there. There will probably be a major gas agreement soon. Alexander, let me jump in here, gentlemen. We're going to go to a short break, and after that short break, we'll continue our discussion on the geopolitical order. Stay with RT. Welcome back to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. To remind you, we're discussing pivoting Russia and the geopolitical order. And say, I'd like to go back to you in London. We've heard a lot over the last 10 years about a multipolar world. Are we getting closer and closer to that now with this breach that we see with the United States and Russia and, and Europe and Russia? Yeah, I think that's basically, to me, that's a trend of international order in the sense that previous decades or so have been quite much the supremacy of, of the U.S. in terms of its, 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 its way of dealing with international uh, affairs around the world. And so probably this time seems like, you know, when, with the rise of China, with the rise of, of, of Russia, and also in terms, for, for example, this time, when you look at the General Assembly voting, mm -hmm. um, all the BRIC countries actually abstained from the vote, right? So that is not just China, but also India, um, so it, as well as Brazil, and which means that many of the developing countries now actually do not really necessarily see things together mm -hmm. Whereas the U.S. see it, um, so perhaps there is not. I'm not saying that is going to be sort of more a direct confrontation, but definitely uh, the, the supremacy and, and the hegemony of, of the U.S. Uh, will probably pretty much will be diminished in, in, a, in a great extent. I will say something about the Russia-China relations, though. And in recent years, people have talked about China's uh, increasing presence in Central Asia. But difference, of course, with, with the U.S. approach towards uh, NATO Western, uh, uh, you know, encroachment, uh, the Chinese presence in Central Asia was more conciliatory towards the Russian interest. Mm -hmm. Every time Chinese uh, visitors to Central Asia would basically say specifically that the Russian dominance would be respected. And I think that's a quite, quite difference between the two sides. And also, I mean, I agree with, with the, the, the previous speakers in terms of I don't think there is going to be a clear alliance between China and Russia. Um, however, there must be some kind of partnership necessarily or development between two sides in terms of coordination, in terms of dealing with international issues uh, in, in around the world. And, and as well, in terms of uh, and China's economic interests uh, with Russia, um, different between China and the U.S. and Russia and the U.S. is that there actually quite a lot of economic engagement between China and, and the U.S. Um, so which means that perhaps the Russian side wants to develop more economic uh, partnership with the Chinese side, but I think that the dependence is, is more skewed uh, towards uh, the, the, the Chinese because um, China definitely needs Russian uh, oil and gas, but I don't know how much other, for example, economic uh, you know, market capacity the Rus Russians can offer to for Chinese uh, products. And so in that case, that I think China still have to rely heavily on the Western market. So which means that the, the, the interest for, for, for China in meddling through uh, the, the, this current uh, you know, relation between the, the Russia and, and, and the West will be very tricky. Okay, Amitav, in Washington, your book if is... If I can jump in on the question... Okay, I was going to promote your Sorry, book, I, but go ahead. All right, give me the title of your book and then go ahead. <laughs> the book is this, uh, and I was going to talk directly about the book. Um, I think the idea of returning to multipolarity uh, is uh, something that I don't believe in. I mean, I, I, what is true that the unipolar moment is ending or it's over, but what comes in its place is not multipolarity, but what I call multiplex. Uh, it's, a, it's a world of several powers, but 
who are woven into a very uh, complex relationship. So multipolarity with complexity. And the complexity would be economic links and uh, even political, diplomatic links. This is not the Cold War. This is not the Europe of the 19th century or early 20th century. There is far too much economic interdependence, far too much interactions in a whole variety of fronts where countries share a common interest. Uh, so, so I think uh, the idea of a multiplex world with uh, several great powers, no single hegemony uh, by any, any power, but with uh, waves of interdependence, both at the regional and the global level, is what likely. And uh, I also argue that uh, the United States is no longer going to dominate world order. Uh, well, it's going to be an important player. Uh, but it has to work through other actors, including uh, regional institutions, allies, uh, and the rest. Okay, Alexander, I, th I think it's really interesting. What does, what does the West lose with this kind of breach it has with Russia? Some very harsh things are being, are being said right now, and we both mm. know the crisis in Ukraine is far from over. What does the West lose by alienating Russia? Well, s straight away, we have a situation of great tension. And there's considerable worry in Europe about severing an economic relationship with Russia. We just heard about economic interdependence, and that is a major concern. And if you look at the German business community, for example, they are not happy about the idea of sanctions against Russia at all, because it goes completely against their economic interests. However, beyond that, Russia is a major geopolitical player. Um, it is a great power. It is located in the center of Eurasia. Um, it has powerful military. It has enormous economic and natural resources. It cannot simply be ignored, and its weight matters. So antagonizing Russia, making in effect an enemy of Russia, is not a good situation. It's not a good play for the United States or for the Western powers. And again, I come back to what I said. We're not talking about an alliance between Russia and China because neither side wants that for many good reasons. But a strategic partnership between China and Russia presents more problems to the Western powers. It limits further their freedom of action. We saw that back in the autumn over the Syrian crisis where the Chinese and the Russians were working, are working very actively together and I am sure we will see it more and more as the um, international situation develops. And say in London, if you were a policymaker sitting in Beijing right now, how would you observe the relationship or the ongoing crisis between uh, the West and Russia? How would you explain it to your boss, for example? Well, I mean, I think Chinese definitely, made, in some ways, very clear that position in, in, in itself in trying to respect the, try to, kind of, try to maintain some kind of status quo uh, of Ukraine situation. So on one hand, acknowledge that Russia has a specific interest in terms of doing what it did towards Crimea, but also in terms of not necessarily endorsing the unilateralism that Russia did in terms of militarily uh, what, through a, a vote, but basically an annexation of, of, of other country territory. Um, but well, I think let, let's, overall, let's, let's be clear here. I mean, there, we, we can't forget the issue of self-determination. The people of Crimea made that decision. If you agree with that decision or not, but that is a historical fact right now. No, I can under, I understand very clearly. Right. China is very, very concerned about separatism. I absolutely understand that. So go ahead and continue. Go ahead. 
No, but I don't think China is necessarily worried about uh, uh, worried about separatism itself. And instead, but, but at the end of the day, it's all about power itself, right? In terms of mm. whether you're afraid of uh, meddling by other countries. But I think mm. what China necessarily do not want to come up. Come out openly. It's a challenge, for example, this particular norm about uh, territorial uh, change, right? I think that's consistent from its uh, previous yep. position in international diplomacy uh, throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm saying is that um, uh, Beijing is actually in, sitting in a very good point of, of time in terms mm-hmm. of the relation both with the West, but as, as well with, with, with Russia. In terms of Russia, mm-hmm. I mean, from, uh, you know, Putin actually said appreciated what, what China has done uh, in, mm-hmm. in, on the Crimea issue. So I think that mm-hmm. in, in that case, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, I said early on that you know, one of the speakers said, you know, uh, that the American, uh, you know, the, the is visiting uh, China, etc. But I don't really need to see that it's going to be any better relation between the U.S. and China. Mm-hmm. There's going to always be suspicion and all kinds of confrontation between the two, two sides. Much of the, the conflicts in some ways are, are almost like apparent in, in terms of relation with Japan, with relation with South China Sea. So mm-hmm. I actually don't see that it's going to be any close relation between U.S. and China in, in, in the future. So that means, basically, there's much more room for coordination between China and Russia. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really mean there can be co- like formal alliance, but then some kind of coordination in terms of both the United Nations, but also mm-hmm. any, elsewhere probably be the future pattern of relation between the two sides. Let me tell you in Washington. Can I say something here? Go ahead, jump in. You always anticipate me. Go right ahead. Please do. Sure. In relation to the question about uh, the the topic of the day, the Russian pivot to Asia. Now, there are a couple of very important challenges. One challenge is that uh, if you do a pivot, you need the support of more than one country. Mm. uh, It's not just going to be Russia, China, but also it has to be Russia and uh, other countries in the Mm. region. Now, uh, that will have to include Japan, the ASEAN countries, where Russia Mm. is building good relations with uh, Mm. uh, uh, so far. And and that's that's really important. That will require Russia devoting a lot more resources, a lot more attention, including Mm. economic and strategic military resources uh, to the region. And it's not very clear to me that Russia would or has the ability to do so. But the second thing is, and this is, I want to be very clear on this, annexation of any kind is a very important issue. It's a very pivotal issue in international relations. Now, I absolutely agree I with you. I absolutely agree with you. Okay, then this is why we call it a crisis. I, I understand okay. what Alexander said, and I think Russia had provocations, and there was uh, you know, and the West mm. has a lot to lose by having bad relations to Russia. Mm. But the fact is that there has been annexation creates a lot of concern not only in Asia but around the world. Now people are willing to give Russia some benefit of the doubt, but if this proceeds even further, and uh, it leads to uh, a lot depends on how Russia behaves from now on. Well, can I just make one very quick point? I mean, we heard uh, we heard one of the previous speakers talking about what a conciliatory policy China had towards Russia in Central Asia. Contrast that with the very aggressive policy the United States and its allies have followed in uh, places like the Ukraine. And I think there is a very great deal of understanding around the world of the Russian position, not just a little, uh, a small amount of slack. We saw that at the General Assembly vote when almost half the countries in the world refused to support a resolution supporting Ukraine's territorial integrity, despite the importance most countries attach to the question of territorial integrity. So I think, I think that's an important distinction to make. To Alexander, say about, I'm sorry, my friend, but okay. we've run out of time. Many thanks to my guests in Washington, London, and in Moscow.
Moscow. And thanks to our viewers for watching us here at RT. See you next time, and remember, Crosstalk Rules. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Well, coming up next, to expand on it and to help us understand how we should prepare financially for the repercussions of the growing tensions between Russia and the United States, I'll have David McIlvenny with me. So don't go away. I'll be right back with David. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TF. SXV and CTNXF on the OTC. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, once again, David McIlvaney. He's been with us before, and for the sake of brevity and because we have such limited time, I'm not going to read his bio right now. It's a very impressive bio that's posted at the Voice America Business Channel website. Uh, He is the president of the McIlvaney Financial Companies, and he's had a, a wealth of experience in his young life, and so we're really pleased to have you with us again, David. Thanks for joining me. Jake, great to be back with you. Always good to talk to you. Um, you know, I've listened to several of your shows. I want to tell our listeners right away to go to McIlvaney.com. Uh, there's a, a lot of very interesting and inf- important information there. And, of course, you also provide a service, uh, various services, investment services, and you do, uh, I believe, make available uh, precious metals as well that people can purchase. Isn't that right, David? That's correct. You know, the business has been going since 1972, and I would encourage any of your listeners to um, explore our weekly commentary. It's a good way of getting to know us and subscribe for free. Uh, it's a Wednesday commentary, and uh, as you mentioned, if you go to McElvaney.com, uh, you, can, you can navigate to that, and um, love to have you as a regular listener. 
Yeah, I really uh, recommend that people do go there to listen to it. In fact, the, one of the reasons I wanted to get David on the show today was to talk a little bit uh, about a show that aired uh, on his site on the 30th of July titled The New Cold War, Russia and Gold. Um, certainly, we talk to Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity on this show on a regular basis, and uh, and so we are getting a perspective that's quite different from the mainstream perspective from Daniel and from Ron Paul. Uh, and uh, in listening to David's comment, uh, David's uh, commentary the other day, or, or that is on the 30th of July, realized there's a great deal in common, I believe, uh, on many fronts, but uh, possibly also on the geopolitical front. You know, David, in your th- July 30th show you referred to a string of crises that culminate in geopolitical crises and I think if I remember you you talked about a financial crisis that leads to an economic crisis that leads to a domestic political crisis and then on a larger scale geopolitical crisis and you know we've had people on this show like Larry Edelson David Gerwitz of Charles Nanner and so forth that are talking about an increase in the war cycle a war cycle that they see uh, based on their work over a long period of time now it was about Five years ago, only five years ago or so, that we had this horrendous stock market decline and uh, followed by, well, it was the worst stock market decline since the 1930s and a uh, a decline in our economic well-being that I would argue we've barely come out of yet. Uh, But can you help our listeners sort of connect the dots between our financial crisis back there and what might be going on geopolitically now? Absolutely. I think it's important that we appreciate how interconnected the world is and Although, you know, in a university education, we, we are taught to think in terms of strict categories where economics is one thing, finance is another, history is another, and everyone has their unique specialization. In, in the real world, all of these things bleed into and, and cross over each other. And so what we had five years ago in terms of a financial crisis, uh, for us, it was very clear where we were going. It, this has been a framework we've worked with for probably seven or eight years now in terms of anticipating a financial crisis and seeing how what would start in a banking setting would ultimately trickle into the economy, creating political problems, and then ultimately what we do know about politicians, and this is just again from a study of history, politicians very rarely like to take responsibility for bad policy choices, so you see the blame game in sort of the final round, and that's where you begin to see geopolitical crisis emerge Um, Again, after sort of the domino effect from a financial crisis to an economic crisis to a domestic political and then ultimately to a geopolitical crisis, you you could say, well, there is no causal effect here. No, it's just human nature and an unwillingness for politicians to say, listen, I got it wrong and I'm willing to take the blame for it. So that's what we have today is is fingers pointing and uh, frankly, what we see developing in in both the Middle East and 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 in the Caucasus is is very concerning. Yeah, it is very concerning. So, what you're saying, if I understood what you just said, is that that politicians are looking for scapegoats, perhaps. And and we have a very very wretched economy here in the United States. I think, although they the mainstream tries to paint it as something better than than I think it is. So then we're looking to scapegoats. Putin is the is the reason we're having trouble. Yeah, I think I think it's moving that direction, and you know, it's 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 a little bit of uh, kabuki theater if we can distract you and make you look over here um, and 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 see that there's greater concern and greater conflict. Um, you're not going to blame me, the politician, for what really is a domestic issue. We've we've got fiscal policies which are a train wreck. 
We've got monetary policies, which are a train wreck. And, of course, everyone believes that we've already seen the death of inflation, which, which I think is, is patently insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but nevertheless, that is the, the, the general consensus today is that we've already witnessed the death of inflation. And, uh, you know, at best, we see it as dormant. Why? Mm-hmm. Again, we've got fiscal policy and, and, and monetary policy that's run amok. With, with the comeuppance still in sort of a 2015-2016 time frame for everything that we've put into the pipeline already. You know, we supposedly, we, David, we supposedly won the Cold War. And, um, you know, it was generally agreed that capitalism triumphed over socialism. And, and many people also believed that the West had a higher moral standing with a, with a belief in a creator that was at the heart of the freedom and liberty that we enjoyed. Our founders certainly uh, voiced that view in the Declaration of Independence. And in a book I read recently, I just picked it up in my library, I almost forgot that I had it, written by a close friend of Ronald Reagan, a registered nurse named Mary Beth Brown. She talks about Reagan's deep faith in God and how that tempered how he handled foreign affairs, and the author of the book believed in many, that it made a huge difference in the way he led our nation. And um, so... Do you buy into this idea that America triumphed over the Soviet Union, that capitalism prevailed over socialism, first of all? And then do you think there might have been, you know, a higher moral ground, arguably, that the West was operating under at that time? Well, to some degree, we did We did triumph over socialism and then forgot how to define those terms and embraced uh, a higher degree of socialism here in, in, in our own policies. In fact, it was Pravda just about two or three years ago that said in sort of a confusing, scratching-the-head moment, I thought it was us that was supposed to be socialist <laughs> in, in, in reflecting on current U.S. Uh, fiscal policy. They, uh-huh. they just said this is, this is completely socialist. So, again, I mean, when, 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 you're, when, when, the, when the Russian propagandists are, are looking at us and saying, you're more socialist than we ever were, I think something has shifted. So perhaps what we had during the 80s uh, was, was sort of the last vestiges of a vision of freedom. And now what we have is uh, certainly a concept of safety and, 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 and of preservation of, of a particular life, which we're willing to sacrifice anything for. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing freedoms go out the door uh, and we're substituting many of them for socialism. So I'm not. I'm not so sure that we can regain that same vision of freedom uh, under the current leadership. Uh, or frankly, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing much of a difference between Republicans and Democrats no. anymore in terms of what their vision of freedom looks like. No, unfortunately, I, I think we'd, we'd have to agree with that. You know, it's. Uh, I'd like to go to the Ukrainian situation a little bit here and get your uh, take on that because you talked about that in that show on July uh, 30th, and I would suggest to my listeners to go back and listen to that because there's a lot more that David and his co-host talked about than we can talk about today. But uh, it's my understanding, David, that through covert means the U.S. essentially toppled an elected government in the Ukraine. I don't think anybody disputed the veracity of the elections. I don't know. But in any event, it was an elected government that we covertly toppled. Uh, it was a government that uh, and a leader that was more pro-Russia than, than pro-West, perhaps. Uh, but anyway, he's been deposed, and in comes another person of, of our liking that we, uh, I suppose, had something to do with, with putting into power. Why are we constantly meddling? Why do you think we're meddling in the Ukraine? What, what's the motivation for this, outside of possibly the one that we talked about earlier, the notion that uh, it, it's a little kabuki theater? 
Well, let's let's consider Putin's perspective on this. As as Russian KGB, he understands military history and that region's um, history of conflict going back not just decades but centuries. And it was this thousand mile buffer that that is the Ukraine today. It wasn't the Ukraine you know a hundred years ago, uh, but it kept the Germans and it kept the French from rolling into uh, Russia. And and so there is this long history of having this land buffer. Mm-hmm. It, it was good enough having a very corrupt, very you could say despicable Yanukovych in uh, office in in in, in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But he had sympathies towards Russia, and so Putin was comfortable with that. Uh, he didn't have to like him personally or, or 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 check a box morally. He had sympathies towards Russia, and that was enough for Putin to, for him to consider that land buffer sufficient. Now Yanukovych is yanked out. Um, our State Department and CIA had some dealings in that. And, and of course, the, the election process was very rapid, bringing in his successor. And his successor is very pro-Europe and pro-United States. That makes that 1,000-mile land buffer a, a, a historical point in, in, in the past, and, and it's very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable for Putin. So this is, I think, why he's reestablishing or reasserting um, some military presence, not only in the eastern part of Ukraine, um, but even Crimea before that. We have uh, perhaps overplayed our hand, and, and we're surprised that he has a response to this. Well, he does have a response to it. And it does tie into Russian history. Um, this was the thousand-mile barrier that kept the Germans and the French, and he thinks it's going to keep NATO uh, at bay as well. But un- unfortunately, now we have Britain spearheading a 10,000-strong NATO reaction, and we've got Denmark, Latvia, Estonia, Norway, and the Netherlands throwing in to help. So, so yes, this is, to some degree, a reemergence of the Cold War. Uh, NATO has... has uh, a new, you know, spring in their step almost became irrelevant, and 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 now they have something to fight against again. Mm. You, I think you talked a little bit about energy coming into into the equation as well. Would you care to just expound on that a bit? Sure. Europe is dependent on Russian oil. I think everyone knows that. the The one workaround. There's several pipelines that that go through Armenia and Azerbaijan, and you know are capable of million, million and a half barrels per day, and this would be taking Caspian Sea oil and delivering it through Turkey to Europe around circumventing Russia. So it's not a surprise at all to, in the context of seeing, you know, sort of the, the, the questions of energy security for Europe, to all of a sudden see uh, an, an old conflict reemerge in that area. This goes back to the early 90s when Armenia took territory that was held by Azerbaijan, and, and there was a secession that took place in, in actually 1988. 30,000 people died in that conflict, and it ultimately was resolved uh, with international help in 1994. But now we've got soldiers fighting in this contested area, the, the contested area in Nagorno-Karabakh, and, and the significance here is that it's just a stone's throw away from the Baku-Tbilisi-Sayan pipeline. Mm. This is the pipeline which carries oil and bypasses the Russian energy stranglehold, if you will, on its, on its way to Europe. So the fact that you now have the Armenians, which are backed by and supported in alliances with Russia in, in this contested space against Azerbaijan, 
who was supported by the United States. These alliances, frankly, remind me of sort of 1914 and the smallness of the conflict, but, but the deepness of the commitment that was made uh, in terms of international alliances. Those alliances right there with the, that relate to the Baca Tbilisi cyan pipeline, I, th- I think, are a tinderbox. Well, you mentioned uh, the intensity of these, uh, of these issues. Uh, how far do you think Russia is prepared to go to? I mean, because this is really important, as you say, maybe uh, for the sovereignty of Russia as they see it, and also this economic issue that comes into play. It's very, very important to Russia. How far do you think they're willing to go? To, uh, to, to try to defend their interest? You know, it really depends on what we try to do to hammer the price of oil. I mean, it, you, you, go, you go back to the ways in which we destroyed the, the former Soviet Union. One, we outspent them in the arms race, and Star Wars was, was a major component of that, creating a context of fear for them in which they felt they had to spend, and we were spending too. And we had, frankly, a, a deeper pockets. But the other part of that, by the time we got to uh, the final breakup, you're dealing with oil prices in, in, in collapse and, and inability for the state to fund itself. You know, th- we're, we're on a knife's edge, the Russians are anyways, because y- you need 110 to $115 per barrel Brent crude to fund the state, and they don't have that today. You know, so so it's not a. They're not bleeding terribly, but let's say that oil got down to seventy dollars a barrel or sixty dollars mm-hmm. a barrel. Now you're talking about bankrupting the Russian state, and I think you will more likely see aggressive behavior. So I, I think our foreign policy on this point and and our energy policy, energy policy specifically, has a lot to do with how aggressive they become. If we decide we want to take them out of the equation and bankrupt them, we we may end up creating World War Four. Uh, it's uh, World War Four. Uh, I didn't know we we had World War Three. Well, I, I consider the Cold War sort of the World, World War Three. Yeah. yeah, sure. Okay. Well, uh, considering the threat of Russia, and I read some commentary from Dennis Gartman yesterday. I'm not a big Gartman fan, frankly, but uh, I thought it was interesting what he said. He says that there is uh, that Putin's military is incompetent. Essentially, he's saying that it is a conscription army uh, comprised of alcoholics and Muslims that won't take orders from drunken Russians. Uh, he scoffs at Putin's statement that uh, he could be in the Ukraine in two weeks, saying that if he could be, he would have already been there. Uh, you know, what, what, what do you think? Is there anything, any reason to fear the Russian bear? I, I think there is always a reason to fear someone that has their finger on a nuclear button. And, mm-hmm. and it, lest we forget, they've only dismantled a small portion of the nuclear arsenal. So I'm, I'm not really concer- concerned about the conscripted soldier. I'm I'm worried about someone who has an axe to grind mm-hmm. and a nuclear weapon at their fingertips. Not mm-hmm. just one, but thousands. Yeah. All right. Well, let's. Th- these are geopolitical issues. To what extent do you think they threaten? Um, they threaten the American, or the, say the equity markets, which has got you know America's more prosperous people feeling pretty good about things again. I mean, they may. Uh, I seriously believe that the average person in the country and the middle class is being hollowed out like I've never seen in my lifetime. But, you know, people on Wall Street and people, a lot of people that I know that are doing very well, and there seems to be a one-way street on this equity market. And as David Stockman has said on this show, whenever the market throws a hissy fit, uh, in comes more stimulus into the equity markets. And, you know, everything is right with the world again as far as the affluent uh, members of our society are concerned. 
How far can this thing go? I mean, is there, is there, do you see some threats to our system as a result of these geopolitical issues, or are the geopolitical issues, I think maybe as you were suggesting earlier, are a result of some of the problems internally? And the equity market, what is your view on the equity market at this point in time? Sure. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned faith earlier and, and sort of the, the, the style of leadership that Reagan brought to mm-hmm. uh, this country. You know, I think faith has shifted in terms of the object of faith. And today, if you wanted to say who are the high priests and, 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 and who is the God, it is the marketplace and the high priests are there at the Fed. And our faith is, is undyingly in their ability to create a context of stability. And, and, and that, is, that is to literally excuse all of the things that we've just discussed in terms of geopolitical issues, political issues, even economic and financial issues, all can be assumed to be well taken care of as long as the central banks of the world are printing money. That, that is the mode of operation in the marketplace. And I think, frankly, it's a fairly frail um, vantage point to, to, to be standing upon. We look at the markets today and say, you know, we're reaching new highs in the equity markets on incredibly low volume in the summer months. Uh, that generally does not spell success in the autumn. It hasn't in the past. When we've seen those similar types of patterns, it's generally been a disaster in the fall. There's no guarantee that that's the case. We've got the ECB bringing out the big guns. We've got uh, Karuda, who can certainly redouble his efforts and destroy the yen, and who knows what rabbits can be pulled out of the hat at the Fed, but we, we know that, again, this is a faith issue. The marketplace has misplaced their faith in the Fed. We had a lovely conversation several months ago on our commentary with William White from the Bank of International Settlements and the OECD, hmm. and after spending an entire career at the Bank of England as an economist and the Bank of Canada as an economist, he basically said this, central bankers have no idea what they're doing. We make it up as we go along and hope we don't get it too wrong in the process. So this idea that the markets have a massive amount of faith placed in the perfectly executed monetary policies of the central banks of our day, I think it's setting us up for disaster. I think it's setting us up for a disaster and and sort of a foundering of faith, Um, but, but for good reason. Yeah, well, David, you know, it wasn't that long ago uh, that there was a loss of faith in, in the Ph.D. standard, as James Grant calls it, with our, uh, with our Ph.D., uh, all these Ph.D.s at the Federal Reserve uh, divining how much money should be created and so on and so forth. Um, how soon we forget, though? How soon people forget? I, it just, it's incredible to me. Um, it, it, so what are you telling your... What are you telling your uh, your investors, your your clients to do? I mean, it's always I know that we talk on this show about the importance of putting your savings into real money that will retain its value, gold and silver. But beyond that, what are you telling people to do these days? Well, I, I think I think this is really fundamental. If you have equity exposure, you either need to hedge it or sell it. I mean, there's there's no no doubt in my mind. You can go from high to higher prices, and you can see valuations go from sort of the outer edges to even greater extremes. I mean, we basically have one more barrier to cross, and that is the valuation metrics of 1999 and 2000. We're sort of the most overvalued, other than 1999 and 2000, in in a 100-year history. Hmm. And you know, th- that to me is a bit concerning. It's a good reminder. Of course, that valuations can get even crazier from here. But you're, you're really playing a mug's game if, if this is how you expect to make money. The greater fool theory is what some have called it, where you're buying today, hoping that some other greater fool comes in and buys your position tomorrow, 
with the equal expectation of future success. So I think getting out of equities makes sense. If you're not getting out, at least hedging your position makes sense. And then the question is, what do you do with a cash position? I, th- I think you sit comfortably in cash and hedge your cash position unless you have complete and total faith in Janet Yellen's ability to manage your money for you, which is essentially what you'd be doing sitting in cash. Create a balanced position between U.S. dollar cash and physical gold. Okay, if you've got something in the equity market, hedge it to some degree, reduce that exposure, increase your cash position, but also hedge your cash position having physical gold. I think you look at a gold-Dow ratio today of about 13.5 to 1, and I think what you're looking at as a gold investor is a golden opportunity to increase your financial footprint a minimum four and a half times as we go to a three to one ratio from these levels and potentially a one to one ratio which would increase your financial footprint upwards of 12 times. To put in simple terms, if you wanted to own one share of Johnson & Johnson today, what I'm suggesting is that with a little bit of patience, a gold owner is going to be buying four and a half to 12 shares with the same money. That's the value of real money set to the sidelines, ready and willing to be reallocated at an appropriate time. It's kind of our mindset. It's what we do with our wealth management company. It's what we do with the precious metals. And and what we want to encourage folks is to take a very proactive stance, not only in protecting their capital today, but being in a position to put that money to work for them very effectively with a strategy over the next two, three, four years. Well, I think that's an excellent strategy. And I might just uh, remind my listeners, uh, if they're not aware that it was only in 1980 that we did approach a one-to-one Dow-to-gold ratio. I want to thank you very much, David. We're out of time. There's uh, what we'll have to leave it at today. I want to thank you very much for coming on, and I'd like to tell my listeners once again, it's McIlvaney.com. Go there for a wealth of uh, very valuable and interesting information. David, thank you very much for being with us again. It's really appreciated. Thank you, Jay. Well, that's all the time we have for the first hour of this week. Next week, uh, during the first hour of my show, I expect to have Ivan Bebek. He's the CEO of Caden Resources, which has been one of my top picks and has also been one of the hottest gold mining companies this year uh, as it's developing its properties in Mexico. I'm also going to have Chen Lin with me. We haven't had Chen on the show in a long time. Chen will join me to give us his latest ideas and investment themes that he's looking at. He's very much a thematic investor and has done extremely well. You won't want to miss what Chen has to say. As I did say, this is all the time we have for the first hour of today's show, but there is a second hour aired exclusively at jtaylormedia.com and it begins right Right away, I will be talking to Daniel McAdams uh, for a geopolitical update and David Jensen for his insights into the highly manipulated precious metals markets. And I expect to have some of my own favorite stock picks as well to tell you about uh, in the next several minutes in the next hour. So go immediately to jtaylormedia.com. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. 